Welcome to the Strangeology Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Boren. From cryptozoology, ufology, and the paranormal, to legends, forbidden history, and more. Listen in and explore the world of the weird and unexplained. Join me as I look into strange and fascinating tales and unearth the truths and theories behind some of the world's greatest mysteries. Be sure to head on over to our HQ, strangeology.com, where you can check out our blog, episodes archive, gift shop, and so much more. Now sit back, relax, and join me as we get weird. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Strangeology Podcast. Coming up on today's episode, we have a hypnotist's encounter with a white-gloved enigma, John Keel chasing after strange agents harassing Mothman witnesses, and for the Beyond segment of the show, a journey to a breakaway civilization. Apologies for this episode coming out uh, three weeks after my last. My schedule got super hectic. I went on vacation uh, the week after Labor Day weekend, um, had some (laughs) home renovations, uh, some of which were emergency renovations uh, to do, and then I wound up getting hit with some gnarly food poisoning uh, last night as I'm recording this, <laughs> but I'm, <laughs> I'm out of it now. I'm good. Uh, so yeah, things didn't work out uh, with getting things done on time, but that's okay. I think uh, this episode will be worth the wait. Uh, anyway, so fall is ramping up here in New England and uh, we love this time of year. The family and I, we, we just went to the apple orchard up in town to pick some apples uh just this past weekend had some cider donuts and uh just enjoying the really awesome weather i'm hoping to do a (laughs) go to a corn maze or something before it's too late um and just this past weekend my my band played our our first show locally in uh almost two years which felt really uh awesome to do also a little bit weird but it was a good time and uh glad to be uh, back into, uh, doing that whole thing. So, uh, I've got some cool news on the strangeology front, uh, which I just wanted to uh, mention quick before getting into today's topic. This one has been on my to-do list for a while and I pulled the trigger last week and purchased a, uh, vlogging camera set up for the show. Uh, it's a Canon M50 to be exact, uh, kind of a, you know, an entry level camera, but I uh, wasn't really looking to <laughs> get some kind of like super uh, fancy professional setup just yet. Uh, I've been really wanting to get into doing some more on the ground investigating of places around New England. Uh, like last year, I drove out to Lincoln, New Hampshire to go visit the Betty and Barney Hill uh, road marker where the infamous abduction took place. And we actually just passed the anniversary of, uh, and having a uh, decent DSLR camera will help for making some quality video content, uh, for, uh, the YouTube channel side of strangeology. So my other goal is to also have a better camera set up for like the 10 to 15 uh, minute top five videos I do over there from time to time and 
perhaps I'll get into some more in-depth topics as well, and maybe I can splice myself as a, <laughs> a talking head into some of those. Because uh, sometimes finding B-roll footage and and uh, imagery to use is uh, very time-consuming and sometimes tricky to find exactly what you're looking for. So I'm hoping to also, you know, figure out rigging this thing up uh, during interviews for a better video quality versus the webcam that's on my computer. So I'm hoping to, uh, to get some kind of lighting set up too, because the lighting in, in the, uh, the Strangeology, uh, <laughs> HQ attic office is not really the best. So I hope you're all as stoked as I am about that bit of news. I'm, I'm still waiting on a few pieces of the setup to arrive in the mail. Uh, I, have a microphone coming for it and uh, some kind of accessory cage uh, for like flash uh, accessories and and uh, a couple other things if I ever want to make additions to it. So yeah, <laughs> there's so many gadgets and options for this kind of stuff. So we'll see what happens with that. And uh, a quick reminder of upcoming events. Uh, November 7th, I'll be at the Fortean Fest in Springvale, Maine, which is hosted by the Paranormal Five, and that'll be a ton of fun and uh, a lot <laughs> quicker to drive to than uh, the next event, which is uh, Cryptid Con, which happens on November 20th and 21st in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, and there's going to be all sorts of awesome folks there vending. It's it's going to be wild. And uh, the other piece of news that I, I have for that is that I was asked to be part of a roundtable discussion with other uh, 40 and podcasters on uh, Saturday evening uh, during the CryptidCon weekend. Um, so it'll happen, I think, between 7 and 9 p.m. So after the conference shuts down for the day. So it's pretty wild. I have no idea what will be talked about, uh, but it'll be an experience for sure. Uh, <laughs> I'm usually like a fly on the wall kind of guy in, in situations like that, but um, I'll have to brush up on some some knowledge here and, and maybe I can add some interesting things to that conversation. So CryptidCon attendees will be able to sit in on this discussion, and I believe it will be recorded and uploaded to the internet afterwards. It's not going to be like a, a live broadcast, <laughs> which is, I'm okay with that. <laughs> All right, well, uh, without further ado, let's get into today's topic, which uh, this first little bit here, we're going to be diving into stories about the men in black. Let's go. So what are the Men in Black, or the MIB for short? I'm sure that most of you listening to this have watched the Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones Men in Black movies that started in the 90s and, and uh, might be familiar with the pop culture rendition of what the men in black are or maybe you remember that x-files episode uh jose chung's from outer space which uh guest starred jesse ventura playing one of these mysterious figures who in one scene uh barrels into some guy's garage in a cadillac 
Um, and this guy was supposed to be like a UFO witness, or maybe he was writing about UFOs. I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, but, uh, <laughs> in the scene, he jumps out of the car and is like, you only saw the planet Venus and started spouting out all sorts of other stuff and then threatening the guy before jumping back into his car and speeding off all while having control over his garage door. <laughs> that scene is, uh, it's still etched into my mind today. It's, uh, it's kind of a funny one, but let's go over a brief overview of what these uh, people, these things, uh, agents or entities are. This phenomenon has um, been going on for a while and people will experience unwanted dealings with these strange men dressed in identical black suits. And it, this whole thing largely began happening back in the late 1940s and early 1950s. And uh, some would argue that there, there might be instances of them appearing earlier in history. Like there's this archetype of characters uh, who are dressed in, in dark clothing or robes or cloaks that uh, uh, have appeared in different literature. But what are they? Are these men working for uh, the United States government on some top secret or unacknowledged level? Are they part of some rogue agency with no ties to the feds? Or is all the stories we hear, are they just a hoax? Or are they something else entirely? It seems like one of the most accepted theories is that the men in black are this group of clandestine government operatives. And more often than not, they seem to be associated with covering up eyewitness stories of UFO or alien encounters. Now, according to the big book of UFO facts, which I, I have in my little book, my bookcase <laughs> over in the corner, uh, there's, there's a few commonly believed facts surrounding the men in black. Most times, but not always, they seem to travel in groups of three. And of course, they always wear black suits. And the interesting thing about the suits is that they usually appear to be impeccably pressed and clean, kind of appearing almost like brand new, like right off the clothing rack. However, there are some accounts where the suits appear wrinkled and dirty as well. In most cases, people who claim to have had run-ins with these guys say that they'll show up after an individual or a group of people have a UFO sighting in the sky or experience any kind of weird extraterrestrial activity that they can't explain. And it seems that it's a completely unannounced visit. Like they just show up at your door for the most part menacingly and uh, asked to come in to talk. And in many cases, the men in black who are allowed into someone's home because people probably think, oh, sure, it's a federal, federal agent. I should probably talk to them or they're just going to come back later with a warrant. And after that, they're, they're let in and things get strange. When the MIB do come in to witnesses' homes, uh, the witnesses have told stories of them being interrogated, threatened in peculiar or otherworldly ways, and are just generally harassed about their UFO story, demanding that the witness never speak of their sighting again, they don't know what they're talking about, 
And if they do continue to talk about their story, they'll suffer some kind of consequence. In one case, a Canadian UFO witness in the late 70s was visited by a mysterious black-suited stranger and was threatened to not talk about his sighting or the next time three men would be visiting him. Now, the witness asked the MIB what that meant, and he replied something like, well, I could make it hot for you. It might cost you a certain injury, which is kind of a weird thing to say. (laughs) But uh, for the most part, it seems that people aren't really messed with afterwards, and the threats that are conveyed turn out to be hollow as the people who have stories about the MIB apparently have lived to tell the tale. And it's also been reported that uh, people visited by the MIB will notice that they often speak in heavy or strange accents or will use unusually formal language as well as slang or old gangster lingo that's not current with the times like yeah see you'll never catch me alive copper see (laughs) um and in many instances men in black almost seem like they're uncomfortable in their bodies as well like they don't quite know how to properly behave as a human and will move around in super weird and awkward ways. Like, there's stories of them just not really appearing to know how to walk correctly. And there's also the curious nature of Men in Black showing a keen interest on mundane, everyday objects like pens and forks. Like, they'll just pick one up and just, like, be completely flabbergasted by them. Uh... and like they notice a pen on a coffee table of the person they're interrogating and they just start laughing at it some people think that if the MIB are real and are actually human maybe it's some kind of thing like a psyop uh to to come off as so bizarre that no nobody would believe the witnesses who encountered them when they they tell their story for others who have encountered the more bizarre kinds of men in black, they've noted that these characters don't quite appear human, and some speculate they might actually be aliens themselves, or maybe something more like an android of sorts. Uh, I'll be getting into some stories that detail some of the wackiness that's been reported from the MIB over the years, so (laughs) get ready for that. So it seems simple, right? Men in black seem like, on the surface at least, just to be maybe government agents sent out to intimidate or threaten people who have uh, UFO sightings and they went public with their stories as a way to quell any larger attention a story might get from the media. And I could see that being kind of a believable thing if some bystanders saw a... uh, top secret experimental craft and the government didn't want the information leaking out so that Russia or China or whoever didn't gain intel on it. Uh, Maybe some cases actually involved government agents who were sent out to keep things hush-hush. Or perhaps there is indeed something otherworldly about the MIB after all. Now let's get into some notable MIB cases. Some of the earliest Men in Black encounters date all the way back to the late 1940s, 
One of the first stories commonly cited allegedly happened in 1947, uh, and this is the year of the Kenneth Arnold sightings uh, and also the Roswell UFO crash. So this particular story uh, involves a man named Harold Dahl, and he had reported seeing a UFO while boating on the Puget Sound. And as he observed the object, he claimed that he noticed it appearing to be discharging some kind of what he could best describe as a metallic looking substance into the ocean uh, just off the coast of Maury, Washington. And the following morning, he apparently was approached by a man in a black suit who threatened Dahl and his family should he ever talk about his sighting again. Now, <laughs> the thing about this story is that actually turned out to be a hoax. Later later on it was it was found that he was making the whole thing up and it never actually happened. So, you know, you got to wonder about the implications of that with with future men in black stories. Now, the true beginning of the men in black mythos really began it seems in the modern era at least in 1953 when Albert Bender, who was the founder of the International Flying Saucer Bureau, claimed that he had been visited by a group of three strange men clad in black suits shortly after discussing a UFO theory to one of his confidants. After this, apparently Bender abruptly dissolved his UFO organization. This case has since become known as the Bender Mystery. Gray Barker, an author who wrote a lot about UFOs and the paranormal, actually wrote a novel about Albert Bender and his run-ins with these strange characters in 1956 called They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, which became the first book to explore the men in black. Gray Barker went on to write several more books on UFOs, and it should be noted that sometimes Gray Barker engaged in hoaxing things to deceive other serious UFO investigators. So <laughs> sometimes you got to take Gray Barker with a grain of salt. Now, a decade later, in 1967, a man by the name of Robert Richardson was driving one evening in Toledo, Ohio. Richardson claimed that he had hit something in the road with his car that was invisible. And whether or not it was a, a full-on car crash, totaled car type of deal, it wasn't really clear. Obviously, he made it out of the area. Uh, and he exited his vehicle directly after the crash, and he apparently found a piece of metal in the road that he believed must have belonged to whatever he hit this invisible object. A couple days after this incident, two regular-looking men driving a 1953 Cadillac showed up randomly at his home at 11 p.m. at night, and without saying who they were or what who they worked for, they started questioning him about his accident. And Richardson took down the license plate number of the Cadillac and apparently found that uh, no such records uh, of, of that license plate number existed or that he was ab able to obtain. And the following week, a team of the uh, kind of more classical style foreign looking men in black 
showed up at his house and insisted that what he saw during his accident was merely a hallucination. But Richardson stuck to his story, and this wound up leading the MIBs to demand that Richardson hand over this piece of metal that they knew he had with him. Richardson then informed them that he had sent this metal piece out to be analyzed, and the men in black then threatened to harm his wife if he didn't produce the metal scrap for them and told him, if you want your wife to stay as pretty as she is, you'd better give the metal back. <laughs> now, despite the, thre the threats, uh, Richardson never heard from them again after they left. Perhaps whoever these men were, they wound up somehow intercepting the piece of metal uh, at whatever lab it was sent to. And I'm not clear on, on whether, whether or not uh, Richardson claimed to have gotten the piece of metal back or, or what. And there are so many other odd stories like this of people witnessing a UFO, talking about it publicly, and then just being randomly harassed by these black-suited individuals that'll show up at their homes and seem to know like all sorts of things about them. It's just really kind of weird, and it makes you wonder. Now, probably one of the most well-known Men in Black cases is that of Dr. Herbert Hopkins, which took place in 1976. So Hopkins at the time was 58 years old, and in addition to being a psychiatrist, he also used hypnotism in his practice. He lived in Old Orchard Beach, Maine, and shortly before his run-in with the MIB, he had been consulting on a UFO case where two young men, David Stevens and Glenn Gray, claimed to have been abducted by aliens with mushroom-shaped heads after witnessing a large UFO rise up out of a field one night in Oxford, Maine, and this UFO shot a beam of light at them. And the next thing they remembered, they were further down the road than where they were, and several hours had passed. So kind of a classic UFO abduction case with missing time. So sometime after the incident, Stevens and Gray were referred to Dr. Hopkins to undergo hypnosis to understand what had happened to them. And at that time, Dr. Hopkins had worked with other experiencers and felt he was on the edge of a breakthrough with his research into the phenomena. Now, that case has a lot of other interesting details about it, and perhaps I'll cover it in more detail in another episode later. But uh, the part I want to talk about involves what allegedly happened to Dr. Hopkins after he got involved with this case. So... One evening in mid-September, Hopkins' wife and his younger children had gone out. I'm not sure of the details of where, but perhaps they went down to uh, the Old Orchard Beach boardwalk for some evening entertainment. And a quick funny story, not to get too off topic, but uh, Old Orchard Beach was where I kind of realized I, I can't really handle crazy amusement park rides anymore. I went there in uh, 2016, I think. And I went on this ride there that had these arms that swung around, but then your seat was at the end of those arms and it also spun around on its own like access point. <laughs> and after the ride was over, I had to give myself like a good 15 minutes to recover. 
I've never actually thrown up from a carnival ride before, but that time I think I came pretty close. Anyway, uh, so Dr. Hopkins is just enjoying a solo evening by himself and uh, the phone rings. Naturally, he goes to pick up the phone and there's a man on the other line explaining that he's this uh, vice president of the New Jersey UFO Research Organization, which, uh, spoiler alert, didn't actually exist. And this man asked if he could visit Hopkins that evening to talk about details of the main UFO case he was working on. Hopkins agreed and went to turn on his porch light. He wasn't anticipating this visitor for a little while, but as soon as he turned the light on, to his shock, this guy was already walking up to his porch steps. And Hopkins recounted that he didn't see any car and was bewildered that he would be able to get to his home so fast uh, after that phone call. And there not be any kind of like vehicle nearby that he would have driven in or gotten a ride from. It's just really, really weird. Now, this stranger was dressed in business-like attire with a white button-up shirt, a black blazer, black slacks, black tie, black derby hat, black shoes. Interestingly, though, this man wore white gloves, and he appeared to be stick-thin underneath his suit. So this was a time where cell phones weren't around, at least not publicly yet. Remember, it's 1976, and the first cell phone was actually invented in 1973 by Motorola, and it was one of those huge bulky things. Think uh, if you ever watched Saved by the Bell and Zach Morris had that huge clunky shoebox size <laughs> cell phone that he'd use. Uh, this early cell phone prototype only had 35 minutes of battery life. And it took about 10 hours to recharge. And they also weren't available to the public until 1983. <laughs> and if you think uh, iPhones are expensive, those phones went for around $4,000 a pop back then. And only rich business executives and government officials were really able to afford and make use of them. So how did this alleged VP of a New Jersey UFO group arrive almost instantly at Hopkins Place? Did he have one of these cell phones somehow, or was there something else going on here? Well, Dr. Hopkins had realized that by inviting this stranger into his home, that he was acting a bit out of character for himself. He didn't ask for this man's name. And there was also the troubling fact that there was a history of crime in the area. So what if this guy was actually there to rob or assault him? And Hopkins' dog even began to act off. Uh, he, the dog first started barking uncharacteristically at this strange man and didn't really bark at other people. And then the dog ran off to go hide in a closet, tail between its legs. So that's kind of a, a red flag that something's a little weird with the situation, I would say. Now, as they sat down to chat, Hopkins noticed that the crease in the stranger's pants remained crisp and razor sharp, even at the knees when he sat down, like these pants were 100% brand new. And then things got a little more bizarre and continued to get more bizarre. 
The stranger then apparently took off his hat, revealing that he was completely bald on his head and he didn't even have eyebrows. Maybe this guy had alopecia. Who knows? Uh, in addition to that, his facial features seemed a little weird as well. He had a small nose, small ears, a receded chin, and his facial complexion was this ghostly white, except for thin, rosy red lips. And that's when we start entering the uncanny valley. Over the course of their conversation, this stranger brushed his white gloves accidentally against his lips a few times, and it appeared that the color of the man's lips had wiped off on his gloves, like he was wearing lipstick or something. And Hopkins later noted that after he thought this man didn't even have lips at all, and that the lipstick was applied to make it appear that he actually had lips, uh, perhaps to pass as human. But it gets more bizarre than that, folks. So after appearing satisfied with the information that Hopkins revealed about the UFO case he was working on, the stranger had a different topic in mind. This man in black stated to Hopkins that Hopkins had two coins in his pants pocket. And to Hopkins' shock, there were actually two coins in his pocket. But how did this man in black know? The MIB then asked him to take one of the coins out. He grabbed a shiny new penny and put it in the palm of his hand. And then this MIB instructed Hopkins to watch the coin very closely. And as Hopkins watched, the copper penny began to shift colors and it turned silver. In the next moment, this penny started to appear blurry, kind of going in and out of focus. And after another moment, the penny disappeared from Hopkins' hand entirely. The stranger then informed Hopkins that the penny would never be seen on this plane of existence again. Now, that's some otherworldly stuff right there, and if this story is true, and if I were Dr. Hopkins, I'd be pretty freaked out, because uh, things don't just phase out of existence, right? Uh, so then this stranger then asked if Hopkins was familiar with the Betty and Barney Hill case that had occurred in the previous decade. And Hopkins confirmed that he had heard, but also knew that Barney had passed away a few years prior. And then this MIB told Hopkins he was correct and that Barney no longer had a heart, like Hopkins no longer had a penny and then told him that he should destroy any material that he had about the Stevens UFO case. Barney Hill, uh, should be noted, actually died from a cerebral hemorrhage, and there was no evidence that I'm aware of that Barney was actually missing his heart. Uh, but that is kind of interesting, if, if any of this is true. And as the conversation drew to a close, this... MIB's speech began to slow down. It almost became kind of robotic. He stood up slowly and unsteadily and said to Hopkins that his energy was running low, must go now, goodbye, and left his house. Now, Hopkins noticed that this guy was clinging on to the railings of his porch steps, almost struggling to get down them, going one step at a time and just kind of like, putting one foot down, shuffling the next one onto the same step, and then going down to the next step after that. 
Like he was super, super struggling to get down these steps. And this strange man also, when he finally made it to the bottom of the steps, he walked into off into the opposite direction of where he first came from and was headed towards this impenetrable hedgerow wall in Hopkins' yard. So Hopkins went back inside, but suddenly out of the front windows of his house, he could see this incredibly bright light coming up his driveway, even though there was no sign of a car or a light when the stranger first arrived. And the light was kind of uh, bluish white and was way too bright to be from a car and was also the wrong color since headlights typically were more yellow in appearance then. And Hopkins decided to rush out to the front porch to get a closer look. But by the time he got out of there, the light and the stranger had vanished. Unfortunately, uh, Hopkins was so terrified by this experience that he actually wound up destroying all the evidence that he had gathered on the Stevens case. He had demagnetized hours and hours of tape recordings that he had done during his hypnosis sessions with Stevens and went as far as cutting them up and burning them. And it seems a little bit excessive, to be honest, but I'm sure dealings with some unearthly type of individual making vague threats and causing something to disappear out of the palm of your hand would cause you to question your reality. And when Hopkins' wife and kids returned home, they found him sitting with a gun in his hand. Hopkins informed them of his incident with this stranger, and they actually went out to examine the driveway to see if there was anything out of the ordinary, any tire tracks or anything at all. And apparently they found weird, small tractor looking tracks in the center of the driveway, but the driveway was far too narrow for any kind of vehicle to have made tracks in that part of the driveway. And then in the morning, the tracks had completely disappeared despite nobody else coming in or going and using the driveway. So yeah, this totally bizarre case. <laughs> Interestingly, uh, although Hopkins reportedly never saw this MIB again, he apparently would continue to have odd occurrences happen at his home, like his phone would be randomly dead or full of static. And patients of his would complain that they couldn't get through or someone would answer and claim that his phone line was no longer in service. Calls that did make it through would often be cut off like halfway through. And when he inquired with the local phone company about like what the hell was going on with his phone, they would they seemed to confirm that his line was being tampered with somehow, but they couldn't determine what the reason was or who was doing it. Now, the strange occurrences for Dr. Hopkins didn't end there. A few days after his own experience, his son John and daughter-in-law Maureen had a truly bizarre experience of their own, which could possibly be related to this men in black phenomenon. On September 24th, 1976, Maureen got a phone call from this man who claimed to know her husband, John, and claimed that he was a friend and asked if he could stop by to visit. So 
John Hopkins met this guy and his female friend at a local fast food joint and then brought them back to his home. Now, did John actually know these two? It's unclear from the writings about this, but there's something odd about these two characters. They appeared to be in their mid-30s, but were dressed in really old-fashioned clothes for the time. It was noted that the woman had something wrong in the way her legs joined at her hips, and both the man and the woman would walk in these short steps like they weren't really familiar with bipedal locomotion and would try to balance themselves by leaning forward. Maybe they had sciatica, or maybe they weren't human. Let's find out. So when they arrived to John and Maureen's house, they wound up all hanging out in the living room and sat rather awkwardly on the living room couch. The man, whose name we still don't know, started asking John and Maureen a number of detailed and personal questions like, did John and Maureen watch TV? What kind of books did they read? What do they usually talk about in conversation? And while this is going on, the man asking the questions was apparently like fondling his female companion and would ask John if he was fondling and pawing at his female partner correctly. And this is just straight up weird guys. (laughs) So John then apparently left the room for a moment and Maureen is all alone with these two strangers. Like, why, John? Come on. (laughs) Don't leave your wife in a room alone with these weirdos. Uh, After this, the strange man started to try to get Maureen to sit next to him on their couch and was asking her how she was made and apparently also asked if she had any nudes. Uh, Like real creepy stuff. So John returned to the room, and a few moments after this, the woman stood up and said she wanted to leave. And the man stood up too, but didn't motion himself to exit the house, even though he was right next to the door and kind of blocking it. But perhaps more bizarrely, so he's blocking the exit, and apparently his female partner that he was with like couldn't maneuver around the man. He and appeared to really only be able to travel in a straight line. And then this woman turned to John Hopkins and asked him to move her male companion out of the way as she was was unable to. And once John moved this stranger out of the way, the woman exited in a straight line, and quickly the man did as well without even saying goodbye. Now, I'm not... 100% convinced that this is connected to Dr. Hopkins' encounter. Um, It could be they were just weirdos with sinister intentions, uh, but it is strange that Hopkins' son and daughter-in-law had this odd run-in with a man and a woman who behaved so strangely that you'd have to question whether or not they were really people or something else with uh, some kind of motives. Before we move on, there's one final twist to add here. So decades later, in 2008, Dr. Herbert Hopkins' nephew, who is apparently also named Herbert, had a blog at the time and wrote an article about his uncle's story and claimed it was all a hoax. So this very well be, could be the case. Uh, this is what he wrote. 
My uncle was, unfortunately, a fantasy-prone individual, craved the center of attention and limelight, and on a base level, he sometimes just made things up, no matter how hyperbolic, to top everybody else. As brilliant as he was in many areas, however, he was unskilled at fiction. And for much of the 1970s and 80s, he was an alcoholic. Every night was spent alone with a magnum of wine. The bottom line for this particular man in black tale is unfortunately pretty mundane. This mysterious being in black, inspired by cheap fiction and alcohol, probably less of malicious intent and more from some sad need for attention, was, alas, a simple lie, one that needs to be corrected for those into serious research into this area. So that's a, a pretty, <laughs> some pretty harsh uh, truth drop there. In the end, I guess it seems it might have all just been a fabricated story. Uh, you kind of have to decide for yourself on who to believe. Dr. Hopkins, who has this detailed accounts of a strange encounter uh, and is a professional and a hypnotist and including his own son and daughter-in-law's encounter with some very bizarre individuals. And then you have his nephew decades later saying it was all made up. I suppose we'll probably never know the definitive truth on this particular case, but either way, it's a very popular story that is referenced a lot in the lore about the Men in Black. And now I'm going to take a quick break for a patron member shout out. If you've just started listening to the Strangeology podcast and didn't know, I have a Patreon where you can sign up and support what I do here. And there are some awesome benefits, one of which is having voting power. This week's episode actually won the vote for what topic I should cover for the main portion of today's show, all about the men in black. If you sign up to become a patron, there are also a lot of other awesome benefits like early access to content, bonus content at the end of episodes, merch discounts, exclusive merch, Discord access, and more. You can also sign up for as little as $1 per month. I have a really awesome group of members who have helped to make the Strangeology podcast function at the level it's at now. So if you'd like to help support the show, head on over to patreon.com forward slash strangeology and check out all the different tiers I offer. Big shout outs to Alex Dorgan, Alyssa, The Mystic Novelty Company, Appalachian Huntsman, MetaZoo Games, Greg Morrill from All the Weird, Sean Cologne, Miranda Jarnot, John Hickenbottom, Maureen Asmat, Prepared Wolf, Gail Frederick, and William Malcomies. So thank you all. And if you do sign up, just know that it helps me out a ton and I'm super, super grateful. All right, now let's get back to the episode. All right, we're back. So let's go over a couple other compelling cases of MIB encounters. This one comes from the blog The Paranormal Scholar. In October 1987, in the town of Wytheville, Virginia, uh, this place became known as a hotbed of UFO activity with over 1,500 reported sightings from local residents. Wytheville is in the western part of Virginia, kind of right in between 
the borders of West Virginia and North Carolina. So this local radio journalist named Danny Gordon decided to start investigating all of these UFO sightings uh, that were happening with his friend Roger Hall. And they managed to actually catch some strange lights in the sky on camera on a few separate occasions. Uh, and I'll link to some in the show notes, but uh, just be warned, it's mostly, it's hard to make out too much detail other than uh, blobs of light against a black background. But uh, it's interesting nonetheless. So after this, things kind of took a turn for the strange and sinister. In the following weeks, Danny began to receive a number of anonymous phone calls from people warning him to drop his investigations into all of these UFO sightings as the, the CIA and the feds were very interested in all of these Wythe County uh, sightings uh, over the course of this UFO flap that was happening in 1987. So over the course of these weeks uh, of these harassing phone calls, his home was actually broken into. But despite this, Danny persevered and made his research public. And after that point, he received and actually managed to record a call from a man that was claiming to be a retired uh, military officer and warned him that if he continued to investigate the UFOs and make his findings public, which I guess he had already done, but perhaps further research, uh, something bad would happen to him or his family. And he was warned that his son was specifically targeted. So definitely some uh, malevolence going on there. Uh, but despite those threats, Danny trudged along with his investigations. And later on, apparently, these two men dressed in black, claiming to be journalists and also wanting to publish a story about Danny and his UFO research showed up at his house. And they interviewed Danny and took photos and, and wandered around his house for about 45 minutes with Danny being none the wiser as to any ulterior motives. And they told Danny that they would send him a copy of the article that they were writing about him, and then they left. And Danny later followed up with the, the newspaper that these strangers claimed to have worked for, but it turns out that the, the newspaper had no record of these guys ever being employed there. So that's pretty sketchy. Uh, and sometime afterwards, Danny noticed that the negatives of his UFO photos were missing from his files. And he assumed that they must have been stolen. And whether or not they were stolen during his break-in or if one of these two MIB-type characters managed to slip out of sight and somehow go through his stuff while he wasn't paying attention is, is unclear. But in the end, Danny's health and family life began to deteriorate from all of this MIB activity, harassing phone calls, and, and, and all the stuff that goes along with this. And he wound up dropping his investigations after being hit with a stress-induced heart attack. And, you know, it's like, was it the stress? Uh, probably. But I also wonder if the, uh, the ex-military 
person that he talked to was right as this this guy also mentioned something about the powers that be might try to uh, take him out via uh, skin contact chemicals that could be placed on uh, his car door handle or the steering wheel of his car, for instance. So, you know, maybe there was something to that. Uh, either way you slice it, this story is it's pretty interesting and it does seem to have a little bit more credibility than the Hopkins case and some of the other ones as well. All right, so I'm sure you're wondering, if all these people have encounters with the men in black, has anyone ever managed to get any kind of photographic or video evidence of them? Well, for the photographic evidence part, uh, we can look at a case known as the Robinson's case. This one involves the one photograph out there that's believed to be of a genuine member of the Men in Black. In 1968, John and Mary Robinson had taken an interest in researching UFOs. Now, this couple had gone out one evening, and then they returned home late at night, and it looked like someone had broken into their place and rifled through all of their UFO files. And sometime later, Mary was home alone one day, and she noticed that there was a man in black standing in a kind of statuesque manner by a doorway of the building next door that she could see out the window. And whoever this man was, he kind of had this strange demeanor about him. And it was described that he wore this expressionless look on his face, devoid of any emotion or humanity even. And for the following three to four days, this man would show up and stand in the same spot and just hang out there all day and not move. And at that point, John and Mary had become rather unnerved about this strange man that would hang out near their apartment. The Robinsons apparently described this man as looking like someone who was dark and swarthy always possessing a nerve-jangling expression. And once John and Mary suspected something strange was afoot, they realized there were strange clicking noises on their phone line, much like they were being tapped. They believed this man was responsible for entering their home and disturbing their UFO research, possibly making copies of it. And after the, the third day of this guy showing up, at this next door location, just hanging out in a doorway, uh, John and Mary's friend, this guy, Timothy Green Beckley, came around and he actually managed to take a picture of the MIB character that day, uh, standing in front of a doorway. And apparently after that, this dude never came back. And uh, I'll, I'll link to the photo in the show notes so you can check it out. It's uh Pretty unassuming, but knowing the context of the, of the photo, it is interesting that uh, there was this guy that was actually showing up every day. And uh, whether or not he was actually uh, a Men in Black, I think could be debatable. But it is uh, some some interesting evidence. And more recently, there has actually been some newer evidence out there. Uh, claiming to show these mysterious and clandestine figures. On October 14th, 2008, 
Shane Sovar, who was this hotel manager in the Niagara Falls region, claimed that he and a security guard witnessed a triangle-shaped UFO near the hotel. And a few weeks later, staff at the hotel reported that one day, these two unidentified strange men dressed in black trench coats had entered the hotel lobby looking for Sovar and the security guard. Uh, but neither of them were present at the hotel at the time. But these men unnerved the staff so much that when Sovar returned, they informed him of the ominous encounter and he decided to review the security camera footage. And sure enough, the footage actually showed the two men dressed in, in black suits and trench coats and black fedoras entering into the hotel lobby. And I'm going to play a short clip here of Shane Sovar being interviewed by the Aerial Phenomenon Investigations team based out of Maryland. And it's a really interesting clip. Uh, so check this out. One of my bellmen approached me and he kind of had a weird look on his face and he said to me, uh, can we go in your office and talk? I brought him into my office and he says, uh, something really weird happened here yesterday and, and uh, you weren't here. He said, uh, there's a couple guys in here looking for you. And I said, a couple guys, what do you mean? And he said, well, um, this is really hard for me to say. He said, but there's a couple really strange looking men that were here. And they kind of freaked everybody out, and they were asking questions about you. And, of course, now I'm getting a little bit nervous, and I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said, well, they were, he goes, I don't know how to describe them except for extremely odd-looking. They were really, really tall, he said, and they were identical height. They were the exact same height. They were wearing the exact same clothes. And they had the exact same faces, like they were twins. And he said they were wearing black suits, black trench coats. They were wearing, like, the old-fashioned uh, Federal hats. They had extremely, extremely pale skin. And he said they came in, and they looked around a little bit, and they asked for you. And I said, I'm sorry, he's actually not working today. And it seemed like they didn't believe me. So they started to walk around the hotel. And shortly after, they went to the tour desk. And he goes, I got busy. I started to have to bring cars around and get luggage. And by the time I came back, they were gone. But he goes, they freaked me out. And I really wanted to tell you that there were these weird guys in here looking for you. So, of course, now I'm a little bit skeptical and I'm a little bit freaked out all at the same time. So the first thing I do is I run into my security office because I know how to work the security system, and I rewound the cameras, and sure enough, there, here comes two gentlemen through the front door looking exactly how he described. Then the next day, I was talking with my uh, tour desk, and one of them um, asked to talk to me. She came in my office, the same as my bellman, and she said, I, I need to tell you about something that happened. I heard that you heard that there were some men looking for you. And I said, yes. And she said, 
they asked a few questions about you and they said strange things that I didn't understand. And they were talking about governments and conspiracies and none of it made any sense to me. But she goes, they were very, very scary. And I said, well, why were they scary? And she said, they had no facial hair, none. She said they had no eyebrows, no eyelashes, nothing. Their hair looked like they had a wig on, like it was attached to their hat, like it wasn't even real. And she said, and the scariest thing, their eyes were so big and so blue that they almost hypnotized me a little bit. And she goes, and you're going to think I'm crazy when I tell you this, but I swear they knew what I was thinking. I swear, and I don't think I'm crazy, but I don't even know how they could do it, and I don't know why I'm even telling you this. She goes, so I started to think about things other than you, and I don't even know if it worked. And she started to cry, and she said one more thing before she left. She said, these men, they didn't blink. Not once did I see them blink. So that was pretty intense. Um, and there's definitely a, a lot of vivid detail about uh, the hotel staff's interaction with these, these strange characters. It's like, who, who were they? Were they with the government or, or something else entirely? It just seems really, really strange. All right. Well, we're, we're getting up there at the top of the hour here. So I'm just going to do two more quick Two more quick cases, and uh, we'll close it out for the day. Uh, so this next one actually comes from uh, none other than Dan Aykroyd. Now, if you're not familiar, uh, <laughs> Dan Aykroyd is into uh, all things paranormal. I mean, Ghostbusters, come on. He, <laughs> he evidently grew up having paranormal experiences, uh, which influenced, you know, Ghostbusters and stuff. And so he's no stranger to the world of weird. And apparently Dan Aykroyd also claims to have had uh, dealings or at least a, a sighting of uh, the men in black. So in 2002, he had signed a contract with uh, the Sci-Fi Channel to produce a show called Out There, which would be all about UFOs. And the show had made it through filming eight episodes and it was done in a studio in New York City, but they never saw the light of day and the show was canceled suddenly and without explanation from studio execs. And the last uh, episode apparently was going to have interviews with Stephen Greer and Stephen Bassett. And in the middle of taping the last episode, Aykroyd stepped outside for a cigarette and while he's out there, apparently he, he recalled uh, that he received a phone call from Britney Spears, I guess. And she was asking him if he would uh, come on to Saturday Night Live since she would be on it soon. And he's chatting with Britney and and notices this black Ford sedan slowly cruise by in the street near him. And it almost looked like a, a police car. And he noted that the license plate on it looked kind of fuzzy, which is pretty odd. Uh, like maybe perhaps it was being obscured somehow. And the car stopped and, and Dan Aykroyd noticed there's two guys in the, the front of the car and then a third in the back. 
who is this big, tall guy who got out of the backseat of the car and stood in the street. And Dan Aykroyd's looking over there, and this tall dude, this man dressed in black, is staring directly at him. And since Dan was on the phone, he wasn't really realizing what was going on other than just like, oh, here's the guy across the street just kind of stepping out of the car. And he looked away for a quick second, as you do, you know, when you're on the phone, and he looked back and like a second later in the car and the tall (laughs) man in black guy was totally vanished, Uh, nowhere in sight. And it wasn't really like you'd still be able to see this car moving through traffic if it, if it was actually there. So definitely a weird, a weird interaction for sure. And it sounds like a potential uh, men in black encounter uh, with this ominous looking figure staring Dan Aykroyd down from across the street. And apparently a couple hours later after that event, uh, he got word that the show was canceled and none of it would air. And, Dan claims that he wasn't given an explanation uh, as to why and wonders if it was uh, the men in black that he saw that day and there was potentially some kind of like government connection as to why the show was terminated. Maybe the people that were being interviewed, uh, there were some higher powers that didn't want uh, those interviews to go public or something like that. So that's a pretty interesting story, at least on like a, you know, a, a more notable celebrity front uh, of of a case. Now, for a last one here, we can't talk about the Men in Black without mentioning John Keel, and I'm sure most of you probably know who John Keel is because of his investigations into the Mothman sightings in Point Pleasant and his book, The Mothman Prophecies. But in terms of the men in black, Keel investigated a bunch of reports of these strange beings or men dressed in black suits, which seemed to coincide with Mothman activity back between 1966 and 1967. And uh, Keel was actually responsible for popularizing the phrase men in black as well as the shorthand version of MIB which is kind of a fun little factoid uh so in in Keel's Mothman investigations he would actually try to chase down the men in black and had informed local police in West Virginia and Ohio to keep a lookout for these these strange agents and operatives and other people would call whatever hotel John Keel was staying at around these areas if they knew he was there to tip him off uh, on the whereabouts of where these potential MIBs were. But whenever he would try to get to the last location they were spotted, they would be long gone by the time Keel arrived. And after Keel started reporting these men in black would drive around in Cadillacs, uh, curiously, they switched to driving Volkswagens for some time. That's kind of funny. Uh, And even Mary Heyer, who was an integral part of the Mothman case, had run-ins with strange characters that could be categorized as men in black. She reported that in January of 1967 that she was working late one night in her office and a man that she wasn't familiar with walked in. 
and he was dressed in all black and she described this guy as very short, like four and a half feet tall with dark and deep set looking eyes and wore glasses with thick lenses, like Coke bottle glasses, I guess. And his shoes looked like they had extra thick soles, perhaps giving him a lift in height. So he might've actually been shorter than four and a half feet tall. And he also had really long hair that was squarely cut, kind of like a, a almost like a bowl cut, I guess, but longer, uh, really kind of a weird look, I, I guess. <laughs> and as a final detail of his description, the man spoke in this strange low voice. Now, this man asked Mary for directions to the town of Welsh, West Virginia, but kept moving closer and closer to her and fixating on her eyes as he was asking directions on how to get to this town. So Mary got pretty squicked out by this weirdo, and luckily one of the uh, managers of, of her office uh, were still there, so she went to go grab them so she could have someone else present with her while she was speaking to this stranger. And over the course of the conversation, Mary had to answer a telephone call and noticed this guy pick up a ballpoint pen from her desk, and he seemed to look at it in bewilderment like it was the first time he saw a pen and then the guy started laughing maniacally at this pen and then ran out of the building with the pen in tow <laughs> talk about bizarre and that wasn't actually the last time that mary would have a run-in with this guy a few months later on may 5th 1967 while out and about in point pleasant she saw this guy out in the streets and this time he was dressed wearing kind of like khaki neutral colors. And when the man saw Mary, he appeared to get startled and ran towards a black car that had just come around a street corner and jumped in. And once he was in the car, it sped off. And a few days later, on May 8th, Mary was just getting into her home and opening her front door and saw this black car stop in front of her house. And some man got out of the car. Uh, I don't believe it was the same short man that she saw earlier, uh, but this guy came out and snapped a picture of her and her house, which... Uh, she said had a blinding flash that disoriented her. And after this, the black car sped off, never to be seen again. So who were these strange people showing up in Point Pleasant? Were they government agents, something out of this world? Or perhaps with all the, the Mothman mania going on, maybe there were some people uh, coming into town to try and mess with the locals and harass people. Um, who knows? And Mary had actually one more run-in with the MIB right after the Silver Bridge disaster. Uh, and after that, Mothman kind of stopped appearing around Point Pleasant. So apparently on December 22nd, 1967, these two supposed MIBs walked into her newspaper's office. And they were really short and wore black overcoats. And she described them as having a dark complexion and appeared to kind of have like Eastern Asian features. Uh, and these two seemingly government agents had no interest in the, the silver bridge collapse. 
that killed all these people, but instead inquired about any UFO reports that were happening in the area. And Mary handed over a file of press clippings related to UFO sightings that had been happening, but the men showed no interest in them, curiously. And then they asked Mary what she would do if someone ordered her to stop writing about UFOs, to which she essentially gave the middle finger to and said she'd still do it. Mary went back to work at her desk, and when she looked up over to where these men in black were standing a moment later, they were gone. Later in the day, another stranger showed up at her office and had these black piercing eyes, and he behaved in a rather odd fashion and appeared pretty disheveled and kept asking Mary about John Keel and if she could take him to where he was, as well as to some UFO sighting locations. And Mary asked if he was with the two men from earlier, but he denied any kind of connection to them. In the end, Mary basically told him to pound sand, and he'd have to explore Point Pleasant for himself. And afterwards, this guy apparently wound up visiting a bunch of local Mothman witnesses and UFO witnesses, uh, including the Scarberries and the Mallets, who had the famous early encounter with Mothman that we all know about, uh, as well as Connie Carpenter, who was another notable eyewitness to Mothman. Now, John Keel believed that the MIB were part of human history and that the modern iteration of the black-suited, uncanny valley individual can be found throughout history, sometimes in the form of beings like the Grim Reaper or vampires or something more akin to belonging to the demonic realm or demonic supernaturals, as he once stated. Now, supposedly, uh, important moments in history involving key historical figures may have had dealings or encounters with strange men dressed in black, such as Thomas Jefferson allegedly receiving the design for the reverse side of the Great Seal of the United States from a strange man dressed in a black cloak. Keel also believed that the MIB were potentially intelligent operatives from a large and possibly hostile group or some kind of crypto-terrestrial or breakaway civilization, which he referred to as the Nation of the Third Eye which incorporates the Eye of Horus, which reportedly has been seen in conjunction with the MIB encounters and may have some connection to an Asian legend of the King of the World and Shambhala. And that, folks, is where I'm going to leave it for today. So if you're a patron, stick around after the break where I'm going to be diving into the mythos of Shambhala and see what kind of connections, if any, there are to the men in black. Big thanks again to my patrons and for all you listeners out there for checking out the Strangeology podcast and digging what I'm doing here. The show just passed 6,000 downloads recently, so thank you so much for downloading the show and sharing it with friends and family and all that. Let's, uh, let's keep this train chugging along and see if we can hit 10,000 downloads by the end of the year. The uh, one-year anniversary of the Strangeology podcast will be coming up around then. And if you ever have any feedback about the show or suggestions or just want to say hello, my DMs are always open. Or you can email me at strangeologist at gmail.com. 
and definitely give me a follow on my Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. And be on the lookout for some cool stuff on Instagram coming shortly. I'm planning on running a giveaway over there around the time this episode drops. Uh, I'm quickly approaching 4,000 followers on Instagram. So I wanted to do a big giveaway of my merch as a thank you for all my followers and subscribers. And you definitely don't want to miss out on that because it'll be some cool stuff. (laughs) And uh, if you haven't checked out my shop, you can find it over on Etsy. I've got a lot of stuff up there with new designs being added all the time. Uh, I've got t-shirts and hoodies and long sleeves for the colder incoming weather. Uh, I've also got designs on stickers and mugs and some enamel pins as well. Always looking to add new stuff. So definitely check that out. And also make sure to visit the Strangeology HQ website, strangeology.com, which hosts my blog where I have more long format articles and content about cryptids, UFOs, and weird 40 and happenings. I'm always on the lookout for guest writers. So if you have any interest in writing about that kind of subject matter and want to submit something, definitely send it in. And also before I totally forget, uh, if you haven't heard of NFTs yet, uh, and you're an artist, it's definitely something you should probably look into. Uh, myself and and also some other uh, content creators in the cryptid community are, are working on uh, some NFTs of our own. I recently launched something called Lil Cryptids on OpenSea.io, uh, where I've done like 8-bit graphic renderings of different uh, cryptids uh, that I've already done in my my home state cryptid line, uh, which is it's been super fun. I've got about 10 of them up there so far. So if you're into NFTs, definitely uh, check it out uh, and (laughs) we'll see how that goes. And that's about it for this episode today, everyone. I'm going to take a short break here. And when I come back, I'll be diving into the story of Shambhala for Strangeology Beyond, the Patreon exclusive segment of the show. So if you want access to bonus content like that, definitely consider signing up for my Patreon. All right, folks. Well, as I always say, until next time, take care of yourselves and each other and keep it strange.
Hey, thanks for sticking around for Strangeology Beyond, and thanks everyone who voted for the topic for today's episode involving the Men in Black. I hope you dug uh, the episode and all the different stories I, I dug up for you. Uh, it's always been one I've wanted to look more in depth into uh, beyond, you know, the pop culture.